got a lot to get to. So let's get to it. We're down to the final four in the NFL. We'll give a quick recap on how we got here. There's some serious pressure on Aaron Rodgers. Derrick Henry is a damn man. And the Niners are releasing the hounds on people. Are the Chiefs really this good? There's some big moves in the NFL coaching ranks and what the NFL really wants to see in the Super Bowl. In college football, just how good is Joe Burrow? And what's the future like for Tua Tagovailoa? What's going on with the Michigan Wolverines and the Notre Dame Fighting Irish? Some quick thoughts on the NBA. It's still football season, so I'm not quite there yet on hoops, but I got a couple of things to talk about. And finally, in the Bruce breakdown, a great idea that'll never happen. All that and more. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 52 of The Format. So since it's been a while and a lot's happened on the NFL front, I'll try to touch on as much as I can, but I'm not going to get too much into detail since there's so much to get to. First things first, the Vikings upset the Saints in the wild card round at New Orleans. Now, Kirk Cousins, Vikings quarterback, he's had to rap on him for a long time. He can't win the big game, and the numbers will probably back that up. He's been terrible in primetime games and the playoffs. But even though he didn't have the best numbers against the Saints, he pretty much had the game of his life, and the numbers, like I said, weren't incredible, but he probably made the throw of his career late in the fourth quarter to Adam Thielen to uh, basically seal up that win for the Vikings. And, uh, well, you know, they, they won that game, and that, that brings the question, is New Orleans for real? Like, we keep seeing the offensive brilliance, we keep touting Drew Brees, but we also keep seeing the late-season failures, and what that comes to for me is, is Drew Brees really that guy? I know, I know. He's got all the numbers, and the stats are gaudy for his career. He's the all-time uh, leading leader in NFL quarterback history in passing yards and passing touchdowns. So, obviously, you've got to be great to put up those type of numbers and, and show that type of longevity. But a lot of the gaudy stats have come in an interesting way for Drew Brees. Um, let's take a look at this. During the mid part of the uh, 2010s, uh, 2014 through 2016, three seasons in a row, the Saints went seven and nine three times with terrible defenses, and Drew Brees threw for over 15,000 yards in those three seasons, right? And basically, a lot of that came when. The Saints were down and getting blown out or getting badly beaten, and he was trying to throw them back into games where they were getting smoked. And that's something to think about. You know, 102 touchdowns and 43 picks over that stretch. Yeah, the numbers are incredible, but when you're getting run out of the building and all you can do is throw, well, that makes it look a lot better for the quarterback, 
even though the gaudy stats weren't necessarily helping the team. So that's something to think about. Um, and now that he's, like I said, the number one passer in history in terms of yardage, we look at the total number, which is incredible, over 77,000 career passing yards. And I'm not saying he's not good, but I think a little bit of context is necessary here. And generally, we look at the totals and we don't break it down the way we should. During the stretch I just mentioned, the Saints were getting blown out a lot, right? So that's something that we have to think about. It's just context. And you know I like context. Speaking of Drew Brees, a perfect comparison to him is Green Bay quarterback Aaron Rodgers. He's another one with gaudy numbers, but only one Super Bowl. They keep saying Aaron Rodgers is the greatest thrower of the football they've ever seen. And I disagree, and I've talked about that before. And right now, I could name five quarterbacks off the top of my head that I believe have the same or better arm talent as passers and are just as great throwers of the football. Pat Mahomes, Dan Marino, John Elway, Steve Young, Brett Favre, and let's not forget Warren Moon. All these are all-time great passers who could make every throw that Aaron Rodgers could make, if not more. So uh, maybe the so-called experts and pundits are seeing things that I don't see, and that's fair, but you know, I just disagree with that, that assessment. Anyway, for all of that, Where's the rings that come with this purported greatness? The Aaron Rodgers people are going to talk about the fact that he hasn't had great defenses, this, that, and the third. But if he's as elite as they try to make him out to be, this is a situation where he's supposed to be lifting those teams over the hump. But that's another argument for another day. I get it. Winning a Super Bowl is hard. And to some extent, maybe we're spoiled by what we've seen Tom Brady do over his career, getting there nine times and winning six of those. But if you're on that level of greatness, like they say, why hasn't it happened more often for Aaron Rodgers? Speaking of Tom Brady, what happens now? Is the Patriots dynasty over? They got steamrolled by the Tennessee Titans at home. Nobody thought we would see that. Funny though, Mike Vrabel, head coach of the Titans, He's a former Patriots defensive player. And he was the coach to go into Foxborough and win that game. That's something to think about. And even more than that, the Patriots dynasty might really be over. But again, if Tom Brady comes back and they can make a couple of moves with that defense and, of course, Bill Belichick, who I believe is the greatest coach of all time, I'm still kind of leery about kicking dirt on the grave. But it's looking more and more like after 20 years of dominance, it might finally be a wrap for that. Anyway, um, speaking of Tennessee, are the Titans really this good? First, they go into Foxborough and they pull off the upset. Then they go into Baltimore and out-physical the best running team and the best team overall this season. They force Lamar Jackson into uncharacteristic turnovers in a second loss in as many playoff games for him. Ooh. Next up, they go into Kansas City and try to slow down that high-powered offense. It's a tall order, but they have the tools to do it. They have a strong defense. They have a great run game against a team that's one of the worst in the league against the run. I think they finished either second or seventh against the run this past season. I'd have to check the numbers on that. But the point is, they were easily bottom third against the run. And nobody thinks Tennessee can go into Arrowhead and win. They're playing with house money here. But 
then again, no one thought they'd make it out of Baltimore with a win either. Another thing to think about, Andy Reid, as great a coach as he is, hasn't been the best big game coach over the course of his career. Something to think about. Um, going back, Texans and Chiefs. I don't know how to feel about Bill O'Brien, the Texans head coach. He has a 24 to zip lead and gives it up in a 10 minute stretch against the Chiefs in the divisional round. Now, I get it. Kansas City has that incredible offense and they had the momentum. But you're telling me that as a head coach, at no point could you get your team to stop the bleeding and stop that run? On the flip side of that game, are Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs really that good? They have an elite quarterback. They, and they have a track team of weapons for him to throw to. But was that game more about the Texans collapsing or the Chiefs storming back to win? I, I just really don't know. Right now, we know the Chiefs look great, but we know what they can do offensively. It's going to be very interesting to see if the Titans, with that formula that they've been using to really pound the ball with Derrick Henry, give him 30-plus carries, and, and get him over 150, I'd say 150 is probably the formula they want, but he's the first player in NFL history. NFL history to have 180-plus rushing yards in two games in the same postseason. But we know what they want to do. They want to slow the game down by giving it to him and horsing him and pounding the rock and keeping the Chiefs' uh, track team offense off the field. So we'll definitely see if they can do it one more time, right? I don't know. Anyway, moving on from the playoff action to some interesting things. Coaching hires. Joe Judge, uh, former Patriots assistant, he is the new head coach of the New York football giants. That's an interesting hire nobody expected. That came out of nowhere. But what I really think is interesting is Jason Garrett signing on to be the Giants' offensive coordinator. Uh-huh. Now, I think that Jason Garrett, he might have it out for the Cowboys here after being dismissed after 10 years. Now, side note, why he would have it out for the Cowboys is beyond me because they gave him a long time and a whole lot of leash before they let him go when he wasn't living up to it with the talent that he's had on that team. But that's another story for another day. Um He's staying in the division now, and he's the Giants' new offensive coordinator, like I said. And that could mean some pretty good things for uh, running back Saquon Barkley. He's already a beast. And even though he doesn't have that Cowboys offensive line, he might have more raw ability than Ezekiel Elliott does. And Jason Garrett might be able to implement some of the things that uh, they did with Zeke in Dallas to help Saquon get even better. And uh, at the very least, he's going to make Giants-Cowboys games a lot more interesting. Now, uh, next big hire. Matt Rule goes from Baylor in the Big 12 to the new head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Now, formerly, he was an assistant offensive line coach with the Giants on their last Super Bowl winning team. Then he goes to Temple, back to college. He goes to Temple as head coach. He turns that program around. That's a traditional basketball school, but he got them into a very viable football program. Then he gets the Baylor job, and they're still in the toilet after all the controversy with Art Bryles and all that, and he turns that program around. 
now he's back in the NFL. And uh, he's the new head coach of the Carolina Panthers, which is interesting on its own. But adding to that interest is the new offensive coordinator for the Panthers is the man of the hour. Former LSU passing game coordinator Joe Brady, who arrived from the Saints and in one year installed the scheme and helped coach the, uh, the, the LSU Tigers to a national championship in one of the best seasons offensively in college football history. And he helped take Joe Burrow to the next level and make him have arguably the best season a college quarterback has ever had. So the question is, now, do the Panthers keep Cam Newton for another year and hope Joe Brady can work the same magic he worked with Joe Burrow by working with him, instituting the scheme, et cetera, et cetera? Or do the Panthers try to grab one of the elite free agent wide receivers this offseason and then still maybe try to draft one in what some people are calling the deepest wide receiver class ever? Now, that would give, if they decided to keep him, that would give Cam Newton more weapons, you know, or they could uh, stay with one of their uh, young quarterbacks, Kyle Allen, maybe try to do what they did with Joe Burrow with him. But who knows? Um, This is going to be interesting to see what Carolina decides to do this offseason. The coaching hires themselves are interesting, but what they decide to do with Cam Newton or the quarterback position in general, and then, of course, with wide receivers, that's, that's another one. So looking forward to seeing that. Next up, former Panthers coach Ron Rivera, he ends up in Washington with the Redskins. He's a relatively simple coach. He will improve the defense. He will demand discipline. And he probably will simplify the offense to make things easier for Dwayne Haskins while he develops into the NFL quarterback that some people thought he could be when he got drafted. All right. He's got a track record of relative success as a head coach. Carolina, he took him to a Super Bowl. Didn't win, but he took him there. So that should be interesting. Um, I think the difference, though, is that organizationally, Carolina was much more stable than Washington is with Daniel Snyder. So I don't know if Ron Rivera is that good a coach that he can overcome front office dysfunction. We'll find out. Um, something else that I thought about. Uh, AFC and NFC title games here. Kansas City versus Tennessee. I touched on that um, in terms of Derrick Henry just being a beast. Uh, Tennessee being a very strong defensive team and the game plan going in is to continue to do what they've done and that's pound the football, take the air out of it and keep the Kansas City elite speed offense off the field as much as possible. San Francisco and Green Bay. San Francisco's defensive line is monstrous. They get after the quarterback. You can't really double anyone because any one of the down defensive linemen is able to get into the backfield and make a play. So you have those problems. And then with that, it allows for the secondary to really, really cover well. So they create a great deal of problems for you defensively. And, of course, they run the football. They run the football. They run the football. Uh, all right. You know why I'm chuckling if you've heard this podcast before. Um, but we know what the league is trying to do. We know uh, what they want to see, and we know why they want to see it for a couple of reasons. They want to see Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay in the Super Bowl against Pat Mahomes and Kansas City. That's just obvious, right? Two all-time great quarterbacks 
who can be super explosive in the passing game. That's what they want to see. By the way, another reason they want to see Green Bay and Kansas City in the Super Bowl is for marketing reasons, right? It's still all about the money. And in the 100th season of the National Football League, if they got Green Bay, Kansas City in the Super Bowl, that would also be a rematch of Super Bowl One, right? The storylines play out beautifully there. It's a marketing dream come true, right? Well, we still have to see if it's going to happen, but we know that the NFL would love to see it. Anyway, um, we know that in terms of the actual game, they want to see, like I said, Aaron Rodgers versus Pat Mahomes, two super explosive quarterbacks. They want to see you throw it all over the yard. They probably would not like to see uh, the San Francisco 49ers versus the Tennessee Titans, two ground-and-pound elite offenses um, who can really run the football, and that's their calling card, right? Because, you know, that's not sexy. I've talked about it time and time again. It's not the most exciting thing. But it's a tried and true formula. I've said it time and time again. Stop the run. Run the ball. College football now, (sighs) unfortunately, the last time I'll probably talk about it for a while at length unless, you know, some interesting big changes come up or some major stories come up. But this is kind of the last time I'll really go into depth with it for a little while. And that makes me sad, as I know it probably makes a lot of you sad because, well, we love college football, right? But anyway, I'll keep it short on the championship game. That's been kind of broken down ad nauseum. But Joe Burrow just had the best season a college quarterback has ever had. And I think that's pretty much inarguable now. He had the numbers. He had the wins over quality teams. What he showed against NFL quality players. The way he just dissected everyone he played. Honestly, we've never seen anything like that. Now, he's most likely going to be the number one pick taken in the draft. And he's uh, probably the number one quarterback prospect. Basically, his LSU Tigers destroyed the Clemson Tigers or the defending national champions and other than Ohio State had pretty much been destroying everybody since they destroyed Alabama in the national championship game last year. Now, it took Joe Burrow a little time to figure out what Clemson defensive coordinator Brent Venables and and that defense was doing. And there's some credit to be given for that. Brent Venables is... uh, Arguably, if not the best defensive uh, coordinator in college football. Now, all that freak talent he has sure helps a lot, but he, he's still a great, great defensive mind. So I'm watching the game, and I'm wondering, okay, are we finally going to see Joe Burrow have a bad game? Are we going to see him shrink against another NFL-quality defense with NFL-quality players all over and under the brightest lights? For a little while, it looked like that was possible. Then the answer came pretty loud and clear. Nope. It just took a little bit of time. But once he got used to things, he settled in and he did what he's pretty much done all season. It's an understatement to say I'm impressed with Joe Burrow and what he did all year. Now he's likely to end up with another Bengals team. 
not the Bayou Bengals, but the Cincinnati Bengals. And for me, that's problematic, right? Um, the Cincinnati Bengals owner is notoriously cheap, and they're just a bad franchise overall. For most of their existence, they've just been terrible. A.J. Green, the number one wide receiver there, he might be gone in free agency. The defense is historically bad, and the head coach is very young. The only plus is that head coach Zach Taylor runs a version of the West Coast offense, so there's a lot of similar verbiage and a lot of similar principles, which in theory should make the transition just a little bit easier for Joe Burrow. But again, we've seen a lot of great quarterbacks hit the league and not make it. But with the way that today's coaches and offensive coordinators are calling things for young quarterbacks and integrating a lot of the principles that they used in college in order to ease the transition and make them more comfortable in the passing game, it's more of an issue of being able to get up to speed against the NFL game speed for these young quarterbacks. But the transition hasn't been as hard as it's been in the past. So we'll see what it is. We'll see what it is. Joe Burrow's not an elite physical athlete, but he showed he's a pretty good athlete, and he's shown what he can do on the highest levels in college with the right coaching. So if he gets excellent coaching, um, which the jury's still out on that. Again, Cincinnati was terrible. Zach Taylor's extremely young, so getting excellent coaching, yeah, it might be iffy, but if he can get decent coaching, who knows what he could be on the next level. I, I think he can be pretty solid. I just don't know if he can be pretty solid with the regime in place in Cincinnati and with that organization on the whole because they are just a terrible organization. Anyway, um, here's another question. What is the future of former Alabama QB to attack of Iloa? To be honest, I was never completely sold on him, uh, even given the amazing things he did and the numbers he put up. For me, not to say Joe Burrow didn't have great weapons because he did, but Tua clearly had the best receiving core in the country. It sure helps a lot as a quarterback when you have three of the top 10 wideouts in the country and the best receiving core to throw to overall, right? That helps. And then, of course, you have one of the best coaches. That helps. And then, of course, you have a defense that's generally quality, even though they weren't as locked down as they have been in the past. They were still pretty decent NFL-quality athletes all over that side of the ball. And, of course, they can always run the football. So everything was perfect for Tua in terms of his ability to be able to make plays and weapons he had all over the place. Um, I'm not saying he's the only one who had talented weapons around him or that he's a bum. I just don't believe, based on what my eyes tell me, that he's as elite as a lot of the experts say he is. You know, they talk about such a great thrower and anticipation and the deep ball and all that. From what I saw of Alabama, it seemed like the vast majority of the time, his wideouts were running wide open and running free. Now, we will see. Again, every time, it's always the same. We will see when they hit the league. And they're playing against NFL defenses and NFL defenders every single week. And they don't always have the overwhelming talent advantage. We'll see what these quarterbacks are going to be. But I, I don't know. For what I've seen, I just don't necessarily believe in Tua. Now, there's also the issue of the injury history with him. And that's another big one. He hasn't even made it to the NFL yet. And he's had multiple major injuries. That's another huge flag for me. Now, 
Another little concern for me, this one is much more slight, but it is still a concern, is that he's left-handed, which sounds ridiculous because if you know me, you know I'm left-handed, and generally I'm all for left-handed players. But if you draft him, now you have to make sure you have an elite right tackle. And that can be done, but reversing things to uh, make it naturally more comfortable for a left-handed quarterback would be something a franchise would have to invest in. Next up, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines lose another big game against top-tier competition. In the Citrus Bowl against Alabama, they lost 35-16. Now, the interesting thing is they were winning 16-14 at the half, but they didn't score another point in the second half. It looked to me like so many Michigan games where they just didn't have the horses to run with the elite teams for the entirety of the game, right? This is Jim Harbaugh's fifth season. He's gotten the Wolverines back to national relevance, and that's a good thing. Let me tell you what he hasn't done. He hasn't gotten them to a playoff appearance. He hasn't gotten them to a Rose Bowl. He hasn't gotten them to a Big Ten championship. He hasn't beaten Ohio State. All these are things that would get any other Michigan uh, head coach fired. So the question is, what does Michigan do? What does Jim Harbaugh do? He's recruiting at a pretty high level for a school with high academics, and he has made the team better. But what do they do now? Where do they go from here? How do they get over a hump to where they want to be and for the amount of money that they're paying him? They got to be able to justify that. There just doesn't seem to be any clear answer to those questions. I'm just not sure what they're going to do or how long they continue to pay this guy elite money when they can't get over the hump, you know? it's I, I'm just not sure. The same problems are staring another Blue Blood program right in the face, and that's Notre Dame. Ten years into the Brian Kelly era at Notre Dame, they can't win the big one either. They have played for a national championship. They got smoked by Alabama. They have made a playoff appearance. They got smoked in the semifinal against eventual clamp, eventual champ Clemson two years ago. This season, this past season, they go to Georgia, play a great game defensively, keep DeAndre Swift relatively in check, can't score enough, and lose a close one. Then they get the doors blown off by Michigan on a rainy Saturday night in front of the entire country. What's going on? The recruiting is greatly improved. Overall, the team's in a really good place. They're faster, stronger, and more athletic than they've been in a long time. They never lose to a team that they should beat anymore, but they can't hang with the elite programs. They just can't get enough horses. Next season, they have five-star running back Chris Tyree out of Virginia. That's going to help. He's coming in, and he should be a difference maker, an immediate playmaker. They also have a four- or five-star, depends on who you ask, wide receiver from Georgia coming in, and he should be a difference maker. Also, uh, quarterback Ian Book says he's coming back for his final season. So he's got, you know, he's very experienced in the system, but pretty much we've seen what should be Ian Book's ceiling, right? There's probably not much indication that he's going to get too much better. Um, I don't know, maybe the weapons help, but overall I think we've seen his ceiling, and we're kind of wondering you know, what will we get from uh, Phil Djokovic, the backup, 
who was highly recruited out of Pennsylvania, uh, holds some state records, won some championships, supposed to be an elite athlete at the position, big arm, all that, but we can't get him on the field to see what he can give Notre Dame. So no one is sure. And then, of course, in the 2021 class, um, you've got uh, highly touted five-star Tyler Buckner out of California coming in. So the recruiting is there. The athleticism is up and increased overall. The speed of the team is up and increased overall. There's a lot of things in Notre Dame's favor, but they still don't quite have the depth and can't win the big games against the elite teams. They're running into the same problem Michigan is running into. Um, They have to replace offensive coordinator Chip Long, who's now gone, and they do it with former Notre Dame quarterback uh, NFL quarterback and Irish quarterback coach Tommy Reese. So he knows the system well. He played in it. He knows the school well. It'll help in terms of recruiting. I'm not sure that that necessarily makes the difference, but we'll see. Again, the question is, what does Notre Dame do? What does Michigan do to get over the hump? You probably could add also a team like Wisconsin in there. It's a tough situation to be in, and I just I don't know where they go from here, either one of them. And a quick note on Wisconsin. With Jonathan Taylor heading off to the NFL, I'm interested who's going to be the next great Wisconsin Badger running back. So it's still football season, so I haven't completely dived into the NBA yet. And in all fairness, I I don't want to let football go just yet. College is away from me, and there's nothing I can do about it. But the NFL is still in full swing. We're now at the championship weekend, so got a little more time with football. But the NBA is really getting into uh, full gear now. So sorry to the basketball fans listening and... uh, Hoping I really dive into the NBA, but I'm not there quite yet. Anyway, as I'm working on this pod, um, I'm watching the Clippers-Pelicans game. And the first thing that sticks out to me is just how much Brandon Ingram has improved. He's averaging a career-high 26 points per game. He's getting seven rebounds a game and over four assists per game in his first year in New Orleans. But what's the common denominator for his explosion as a player? Of course, he gets away from LeBron James and immediately his game flourishes. Take that how you want to take it. I know context is important, but simple things like variables can tell us things. You introduce a variable and certain things happen. You remove a variable and certain other things happen. So, right, the empirical evidence is there that the variable was what made the difference. But, hey. I know a lot of people aren't going to go with that. It just seems pretty obvious to me. Side note, every game is different, but I think it's safe to say that the Los Angeles Clippers are the best perimeter defensive team in the NBA, right? Right. The Pelicans just scored 80 points on them in the first half. The Lakers couldn't do that. And I don't know too many people, if any, that would argue the Pelicans having better players than the Lakers. But to quote the uh, great Hall of Famer Shannon Sharp, that ain't none of my business. Anyway, Steph Curry recently said that uh, his career wouldn't be the same without his splash brother, Klay Thompson. That's pretty obvious. 
with the type of spacing they both create for each other on the floor, it makes everything so much easier for both of them offensively because defenses can't really leave one to focus on the other. It might be the most perfect fit ever for backcourt players. On another note, the Milwaukee Bucks are rolling again. Giannis has somehow gotten better after winning MVP last season. And even though he still doesn't have a legit second star and the Bucks don't do load management, at least not the way we normally think about it in terms of sitting superstars to preserve them for the postseason. No, no Milwaukee Buck is playing over 34 minutes a game, but they're still beating teams by about 13 points per game, which would be the highest margin of victory in NBA history if that carries through the season. So that's interesting. Um, I don't know if that's a testament to how good they are or how weak the league has gotten on the whole. Because uh, putting these bucks up there with the all-time great teams of the past, no matter what the numbers say, yeah, I don't know about that. Even if they win the Eastern Conference, I pick Philly right now, but they're struggling at sixth place in the East. So yeah, e even if the Bucks win the East, I can't see them beating a healthy Clippers team. Long way to go before any of that, though. Um, here's a question: What do we make of Trey Young? I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. He's averaging 29 points per game, eight and a half assists per game on the season, looking like the player he was in college. But even though he's having an incredible year, the Hawks are the worst team in the league. They're 10 and 32. And are they empty numbers? Clearly, he's improved as a player. His numbers are up across the board. But it's always said that it's easy to put up big numbers on a bad team. So I don't even know what I'm seeing when I watch Trey Young and I'm seeing the uh, tremendous production that he's having. But what we're also ignoring is him averaging almost five turnovers per game. That is horrendous. Now, obviously, he's got a crazy usage rate. It's one of the highest, if not the highest in the league. But still, five turnovers a game, to me, there's pretty much no excuse for that if you're one of the elite players. But I, I just don't know. I, I'd have to sit back, watch Trey Young some more, watch what the Hawks are or aren't doing, and just just see what it is. That team is taking a, a, a really big step back this year, and um, it's going to be, uh, I, I, I don't know. I really can't figure out how to evaluate Trey Young. Going to have to pay more, more attention to him down the stretch. Uh, should be interesting. I gave you fair warning, beware. Before we get up out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce. Recently, on the pull-up podcast with CJ McCollum, he mentioned that his backcourt partner, uh, Portland Trailblazers guard Damian Lillard, says that he knows how to spice up NBA All-Star Weekend. First, Remember the marquee event at All-Star Weekend used to be the slam dunk contest? Then, over time, the marquee players in the league stopped competing. Namely, the biggest name in the league, arguably one of its most athletic players ever, LeBron James, refused time and time again to enter the dunk contest, even though he puts on dunking exhibitions in practice and in the layup line and wherever else, but not where the lights are the brightest. And him refusing to do it seems to have paved the way for other superstars not to compete. 
and it's it's sad really but that is what it is so back to damian lillard apparently his idea for spicing up all-star weekend would be to add another event and what would that event be Damian Lillard wants to add a one-on-one tournament where players could even call other players out. I would love to see that, but it'll never happen. And there's a few reasons why. Number one, the players today, for the most part, don't want to compete against each other. They're too friendly. They avoid the matchups in the game, and they try to join up on super teams. So why would they play against each other in a one-on-one tournament? Two, Even if the event did get added, I don't think most of the elite players would do it. Three, it would be terrible because most players in today's NBA either won't or can't defend. And finally, number four, guys would probably be too scared of getting injured. And don't get me started on that. And in addition to the injury piece, they would be too worried about their brand if they lost. But the fact is, when you compete, it never hurts your brand. But, uh, you know, nowadays, everything, social media age and all that, they'd be too worried about the wrong things instead instead of getting out there and making it happen. At the end of the day, it's a good idea, Dame, but I just can't see it happening. And that's it for the Bruce Breakdown, and that's it for this episode of the Format Podcast. Um, I'm going to do what I do every week at this time. Um, I want to say, uh, first and foremost, if you're a returning listener, Thank you for staying with me through 52 episodes or for however many episodes you've been here. I really appreciate that. If you're a new listener, thanks for checking in with me, taking the time to hear what I have to say. Hopefully I said some things that were interesting. Hopefully I said some things that were thought provoking. And uh, even if you hated it, thank you for taking the time to listen. I appreciate that. If you enjoyed it, don't keep it to yourself. Go ahead, share the pod. Let's get it in as many ears as we can. Um, you can catch me on social media. You can catch me on Twitter at Bruce F A Hope. That's at Bruce F A Hope. You can catch me on uh, Instagram at the Format Podcast at the Format Podcast. I love to hear from you. Um, even if you want to tell me that I'm the dumbest person ever in the history of the world to try to talk about sports, that's cool. Just tell me why. I love the interaction. Um, if you just want to shoot the breeze with me, come through. Shoot the breeze with me. If you want to uh, suggest topics for next show. Uh, I'd love that if you want to tell me where I was right where I was wrong where I could get better all that uh, you know hit me up let let me know what it is I really appreciate it another thing I want to say the format podcast as always is written produced and recorded by me Bruce Hope um, I this is a labor of love I take the time to do it um, I know sometimes I might miss a week because I get pretty busy with life things but uh you know, we all know how that goes, but I always get back to you as soon as I can. Um, anyway, uh, at the end of the day, you know, just uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for listening. Um, and I'm out. Peace.